The Persistent and Nasty podcast is a series of interviews and informal discussions with inspiring women and other marginalised voices in theatre, film and beyond. From actors to activists, we aim to amplify these voices and invite the world to stay nasty. The Persistent and Nasty podcast has teamed up with We Edition to offer our members 25% off monthly subscription. Head over to We Edition and type in NASTY, all capital letters, 25 at checkout. I have said it before, I will say it again. We Edition really are the future of casting. And also you can make money while being a member on the site. You can um, be a scene partner for people and you can help with accents. You can just generally help each other out. And it's a really important thing for us to do, especially during these times and just a lovely way to have community. Our other offer for our listeners is still with Backstage. Backstage are offering our actors 12 months free subscription. You heard that right, 12 months free if you follow the link in the description box. For casting directors, you can post free castings when you type in persistent and nasty at checkout. Well, hello, you gorgeous lot. How are you all doing? Welcome to another episode of Persistent and Nasty. Today's guest is the amazing Kerry Ava McCormick. Misha and I sat down with Kerry Ava and had a great chat just over a week ago, actually. Um, and this is all about Kerry Ava's um, project that she had and w- that toured actually in Scotland a couple of years ago called The Typist. And she's now creating an album to go along with that. It's really inspiring this whole episode and everything that she talks about. We have, we uh, geek out on history, we talk about politics, we talk about, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of talk about politics actually, um, and just what inspires us and what keeps us going and what the beautiful connection between dance, acting, singing and what they create, not just the musical theatre part of it, but all the other strings that that brings and how beautiful it really is. Um, So yeah, sit back, relax, enjoy, as always. Don't forget to like and subscribe and leave us a wee review. It really does help us. And also you can follow us on all social media, Twitter at Persistent Nasty, Instagram at Persistent and Nasty, Facebook persistent and nasty and of course you can find us online and if you want to get in touch with any suggestions for guests any topics you want us to cover then just email us at persistent and nasty at gmail.com anyway that's enough of me rambling on for today have a great week guys stay well take care of yourselves and each other and enjoy this brilliant episode so um why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and then we can just because I'm really excited for everybody to hear about your project. Thank you. Uh, well I'm Carrie Ava McCormick and I'm a dance theatre director here in Scotland. Um, I have a dance theatre called Camry, Camry Dance Theatre which is K-A-M-R-I. Um, we had a uh, quite a long durational project called The Typist, which toured a few years ago in Scotland, but originated in being a research project and also now a recording project. So there's a soundtrack album that has sprung forth from that. I'm 
I've also been writing a new show as well, which we'll start working on in the autumn, which I'm really excited about, but can't say too much about just now, unfortunately. But um, yeah, and uh, other people might know me as being a musician as well, which I was for, still am, for many years. Um, and that's enough to be to be <laughs> that's enough to be getting on with. Um, yeah. When so when did you start becoming a, a theatre director then? If uh, well, I was in the music world for a really long time and uh, recorded solo albums and was working as a session musician here, but also in London. I did the whole London thing. I lived down there for a good while. And, uh, worked with big bands like Agent Dove Foundation and all that kind of crew and Adrian Sherwood on New Sound, um, a lot of well music, I've worked with a lot of musicians from all around the world. Um, but I was also always a dancer and whenever I was doing music projects, as much as you can move on stage, which is actually a very particular uh, movement for Cabernet all of its own, interesting but um i had the desire to write my own shows where i'd be able to throw all of those things onto a stage and um i'm also somebody very interested in historical narratives and in research um i've got a bit of an academic background in that so yeah i wanted a home to be able to put all of those things in theater was always going to be it. It's mm. just how we get there is quite interesting, you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've been working in theatre a lot over the years, but always in other people's stuff. So it seemed the natural progression to start a theatre company and write my own work. Yeah. It's like, it's that thing though, isn't it? Like we, there's definitely more of us are, and I think more women actually, in particular, especially over the last, few years it's that kind of impetus that we've got to create our own stuff yeah in Scotland especially I think you know we've had the delightful core yes yeah incredible things but you know there's people that haven't even had as much recognition as her that makes really interesting work as well and um yeah there's quite a good source for that I'm interested in what's coming through as well all the time um, yeah. expanding more dance theatre though what that means um, in the sector here so yeah they're, they're strange and unusual but very creative and interesting times at the same time it's that thing though isn't it that I think um, people kind of tend to think about um, acting, dance, music as three separate entities but actually they're so interlinked with everything that the, the core of what they are is so interlinked so to put them together in a show obviously I mean people go and see musical theatre all the time but when you think about when people you know contemporary dance or things like that they'll, they'll go yeah yeah the dance and the music aha uh-huh, but they wouldn't think about the acting part of it and the storytelling part of it but actually it's so it's all linked it really is I mean I think the term multidisciplinary has been bandied around for a hell of a long time, but hasn't actually really meant anything. You know, it's been a box on 
funding applications rather than it's actually been a reality or it's been a, an, an academic exploit where departments are trying to combine and things like that but to actually see it yeah realize now and that and i think with the onset of digital technology people using film and so much digital work in their work it always blurs those um divisive boundaries that existed before anyway um so yeah i mean the work i do is very multidisciplinary but um i don't try to do it all myself in production <laughs> i think the typist was a really big learning curve for me in that regard of directing and dancing in it and writing the music for it i mean it was um it was nuts but it was my first trip out of directing my own stuff and you learn you know so i've got a lot more help for the next one that's for sure <laughs> Like I'm making sure on the funding application form that that goes down. Yeah. Exhausted woman, help, yeah. So, uh. <laughs> How have you found it uh, balancing the different roles? Like I feel like as an industry we're quite often plate spinning, but when you're plate spinning with different like hats on, how have you found that? Uh, I think it depends what feeds the idea so i know a lot of choreographers that um are as musically led and they could quite happily choreograph pieces entire pieces and think about the music a bit later in the process for me i need to be absolutely ankles deep in the research and the story and the talking to people and the interviewing people in the so, you know, I go really heavy into that side of things. There's nothing I love more than a newspaper library or, you know, sitting with really old people and talking to them for hours and recording them. Because um, essentially I am a nerd, you know, and that's, that's fine. So <laughs> I kind of feed the nerd in me first and do that. And through those stories, I'm starting to hear the music already. Um, because music for me isn't a backdrop. I mean, it's such an emotive language out of all of the arts. And uh, and then from the music, I start to see um, the, the staging and the choreography is always going to be fed by the musical content, you know, because the body needs to feel, the body needs to feel music. And, and so once I'm feeling that music, then I, I know what dance, I want to put to it so that's kind of the order it's it's not always in those strict orders there are things always happening at the same time and little nuggets going on and emerging but if you imagine it like a mind map you know uh, when you sit on the floor with a big bit of paper and there's speech bubbles all over <laughs> and you're kind of all right this is all gonna fit together at some point but you're just chipping away at each part so that's more or less how it works yeah it's one of my favourite things to do, yeah. it's a mind map. Yeah. I love it, it's like my favourite. I love devising, so that kind of whole, that idea is just uh, brilliant. Sorry, Misha, you were going to say something. I'd well, I was just going to say, did you do you have a favourite, I mean, you've said you're like a geek for the for the research, but do you have like a bit that really like you feel when everything comes together and it just gets you that extra level of excitement? What part of it do you start to kind of like, is it when you've got the music in place and it's the choreography coming together that you kind of have that that kind of like surge of do you or do you find that you have that kind of surge throughout i think the problem is quite often 
I do see the whole thing at the same time. And so it can be like a, a picture that's slowly starting to come into focus. But I think the exciting part is when everybody is, you will have worked with lots of people individually, you know, or work with the musicians or then work with dancers. So everyone's been a part. But the moment everybody comes together and you start to see it working, then yeah, that's an enormous buzz. Plus you're in the space, you know, and you're discovering even right up until uh, the dress, you're discovering new things that the space can bring as well. And I think the next one I'll be using the auditorium a lot more and exploring that, how to subvert those spaces. Although we still don't know, obviously, what will happen and how yeah. much it's going to be public facing. But I think as an artist, that you still have to imagine, you know, and, and um, from that imagination of what you would want it to look like, then you can perhaps convert it to a digitized version, should it be necessary. But um, maybe there'll be lots of different interact, different kinds of iterations. So, I know it's a really, um, it's a kind of, I suppose, I think for me, I was, I've been looking at it as, oh God, what, what's happening to our industry, but actually really magical things could happen throughout this because we're all going to be forced to think out of the box yeah and that's the really exciting part that's the part that probably most of us as performers creatives actually love uh, and i think the i don't know i think well for me anyway artistically that yearning that you have from the separation anxiety that's been a part of all of this of not being able to see loved ones, not being able to hug them, being really weird about hugging your friends even, you know, things like that. I think, but there's also a yearning for many things that in your workplace that you were taking for granted, you know, it's those relationships and those spaces. And I think that is something I'll be interested to play with a little bit, that notion of yearning. Um, yeah, but also, I've really enjoyed the diminishment of the superficiality of a lot of things. I haven't had to be somewhere. I haven't had to look a particular way because, oh, it's a meeting. I have to do this, you know. And that element has disappeared, which has been amazing. And you realise how much space that takes up in your day and how much that has opened up to really honing in on the real nugget of your creativity. So I've appreciated that, but it's, yeah, it's bittersweet. It's been a double-edged mm. sword, for sure. Yeah. Um, I'd really love to know about um, the, the story of the typist and then the soundtrack and everything, because um, when Miranda uh, sent me through the press pack for it, I was like, ooh, this is interesting. Because you've got a fellow couple of nerds here with you, and I... You know, sit me down in front of an old person. I will happily listen to their life story over and over again. So yeah, just um, I think it just sounds fascinating. The people that you met to create this is just like really fabulous. Yeah, but that's where it all started. So I was gigging in London, working as a musician and as a session musician, and started to have these ideas of. Actually, I had started to make an album, um, which is album number three. I'd been working on that anyway, I'd been writing. And 
as I got into that process, as I was writing the typist, it became obvious, okay, no, this is going to be the soundtrack. Um, but I became aware of this story and I'm honestly trying to think now exactly where it all started. Where did I read this thing? And it may have been an article in a newspaper this big about a centenary, not a centenary, but a memorial date of the story of the Habana, which was the boat that brought 4,000 children to the UK from the Basque country, from the Bar. And um, they were all children of uh, Republican families who were anti-Francoist in the Spanish Civil War. So as I started to delve deeper, and around the same time I met Alexi Sale, um, and I've been reading his book called Stalin Ain't My Homework, where he, <laughs> which is a great read, I'd recommend it to anybody. It's right? such a brilliant title as well. <laughs> And he's talking about his childhood and he's, you know, he's having all these revolutionaries in his living room all the time because his parents were communists. But he talked a lot about his father who, during the Spanish Civil War, because he was a railway man, um, a trade union railway man, um, he had access to passes. So he was helping pass through the railways who were volunteers, international brigaders, to get to Spain. And so there would have been the Irish boys that came over. He was helping get them down and getting the boys from up north down to then take the crossing. Um, so I don't know. And also I danced flamenco. And at, at that time I was dancing a lot of flamenco. Um, so it all kind of combined into me becoming, and the Spanish Civil War, I should say, politically has always been something I've been intensely interested in. So. It's always been kind of in the back burner of maybe making a show connected with it at some point. But when this came to my attention, um, I was looking into old stuff at the International Gate. I was also in Spain a lot and I came across this story and I contacted an organisation called um, Basque Children of 37, Los Niños de la Guerra 37. So 1937 was the year that they came. So it's, it's story time and carry over. But anyway, no, it's great. Uh, <laughs> <good. laughs> I'm like, you're going. <laughs> anyway, um, I got in touch with this organization and I met a wonderful woman, Carmen, and she had been. So these 4,000 children were put on a boat with no support from the British government, surprise, surprise. And it was down to local charities, the Salvation Army, philanthropists to house and disperse these children from Southampton all over the country. And there were some children that were sent to the Gatehouse of Fleet in Dumfries and Galloway. So while I was talking with Carmen, I said, does any of the niños, because her association keeps them all together, they organise things together, they have memorials and so on. I said, Did, was anyone ever sent to Scotland that you know of? And she said, oh, yes. And there's a lot of them here, which was London at the time. Why don't you go and meet them? So every Wednesday they meet still. Those, I mean, we're talking about very old people here. And unfortunately, there's less and less every year. But they used to meet in a community centre in Camden. And, um, yeah, which was right around the corner from the Irish centre in Camden. 
So I would go in there and sit and I would chat with them. And some of them were like, oh, we've already written a book of all our testimonies and we don't want to talk about this all the time. I'm like, okay. But there was a few of them that really did and they had been sent to Scotland and fortunately had really good experiences. And I know, they could have gone another way, you know? Um, <laughs> unfortunately, the colony and the family uh, families that they were sent to in Scotland were very, very good to them. And um, the lady that I was talking to a lot, bless her heart, she invited me to her home. And so I started going to the homes of the Ninos. Uh, they were in their 90s and they were very proud of their history still, still very political and um, very heartbreaking stories. Obviously, they couldn't go back to Spain because they were labelled as political exiles, even though they were still children. Um, but the Cold War had started in Britain as well. Once that started, they were, they were seen as being dangerous also and they had to sign at police stations every week. So it was this just constants uh, being betwixt and between concerning their identities. Um, but when I was with them, they were showing me a lot of artifacts, photographs, um, all kinds of interesting, amazing, amazing things, you know, and uh, gave me copies, letters, um, you name it. They were yeah. so open. And obviously to this day, I'm still in contact with the organizations, the International Brigades and so on. But um, yeah, amazing people. And from there, we started to write the dramaturgy of the show, obviously. And, but there was such an anxiety about getting that right. And I was very fervent about that. This is people's lives who, by the grace of God, have been good enough to let me into their, their homes and let me have their stories and talk to me, you know. So yeah, it, it was a ride, as they say. And, um, what was lovely when we did tour the show as a dance theatre show that a lot of children and grandchildren of either Ninos or International Brigaders in Scotland came to the show and they all brought things with them. And there was, I remember when we played uh, one of the smaller theatres it was, because I remember it wasn't Glasgow or Edinburgh, it was somewhere we were in between, maybe up in Inverness or in Cumberland or somewhere. And this lovely man brought these two enormous albums. They were like anthologies of both of his parents' lives. Both of them have been Ninos. Um, and yeah, showing me photographs of the colonies, how they lived, where they were, what happened to them afterwards. Because the type of show, the interesting thing about all of the stories for me was what happened when they were coming of age, you know? Mm. For the ones that didn't go back, where did they go? And there was this hotbed of political activity in a centre in London called the Hogar Español. Hogar means home. And some of the former republic before Franco, the, the former republic leaders opened this centre. Oh, so wow. there was all sorts going on in there, you can imagine. <laughs> um, there was organising, protesting, um, you know, false documents being made, you know, to that extent as well, and, and just a place where they could all unify mm. uh, musical events. And these things happened monthly, but slowly, as they, they were all coming of age, all of them moved to be as close as they could to this centre, as you can imagine. And then they all started to date and to marry each other and so on. So 
yeah so the, there was always this culture maintained within the marriages that happened as well which was interesting um and some did go back but they had a really difficult time obviously being accepted and unbelievable poverty when they did return in fact with spain as well but um yeah so that so the story of the tempest is more about what what is going on in the hogar and what is it's a love story it is it what is happening when this woman uh, esperanza who's cover of age meets this slightly older man who had served and was still helping some people in over the border and i had some forges documents that i've been able to look at and the story of a man that actually was doing this and i thought well that's that's our protagonist for sure you know that's an interesting character <laughs> he lives in the past but um yeah so that's that's basically how it all came about really yeah and then because obviously you'd made that connection with alexi sale was that the choice then to have him in that first tour yeah and it was funny how it happened we've been talking at comedy events in london and uh, i was like well i've got this for you you're gonna do it he was like yeah go on then (laughs) (laughs) it really was as simple as that but i think it was that recognition of well you know we're on the same page page. yeah the same page with their our political leanings we say in our kind of deeply held uh, love of this particular story too and um, yeah Alexi came to the studio where we've been recording the album and did the voiceover, did the narration, yeah. And it's exciting so the album is released in August? No, we're, we're, so what is going on is we're fundraising. The fundraiser, sorry, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've Everything's recorded, but what we need to do to finish it off is to do a very last mix to master it. Excuse me. And what else do we need to do? Then the reproduction of it, which we want to do in a really beautiful way. I want to have, you know, on vinyl and for there to be an information booklet with all of this story within it and all of the people involved as well. Um, yeah. And that's going to take money and time to do. Um, so, yeah, so mastering reproduction uh, and artwork of that, and then we'll need to put it out there. Yeah, so the fundraiser will be till the end of August, but hopefully, we'll get this out later autumn. It will actually be out. Amazing. And I'm so excited. I love the sound of it. It's just, I'm honestly like, <gasps> I wish people could see my face. It's like, just listen to the stories. Oh, I love it. I mean, obviously it's like, there's some really like, it's heartbreaking and it's, but I just, I think having um, real people's stories being told in such beautiful ways, is so exciting. Yeah. You're you're very conscious of the fact that you're sitting in a room with a living artifact, you know, a Mm. living piece of history. Um, Yeah. There's nothing but reverence, really, to that fact, mm-hmm. you know, when you're, when you're in that situation. But, yeah. Well, even just listening to you talk about it, I'm getting goosebumps. <laughs> <laughs> I think well, the thing that I find the most interesting is the fact that, you know, we're, like, what, 70, 80 years on, 
and yeah. there's kids that are still having to go through that from different parts of the world that are being shipped off um well, or or that's the interesting thing sorry, of um working with historical narrative because there is always a push to this is happening now still and do you hope when people come out of the theater that they're connecting the dots and not only seeing it as a historical piece the next piece will be the same you know the next piece i'm working on right now isn't set in 2020 it's set in the late 70s but there's so much of what is happening now within this story um again bit of a real life tales as well but, uh, I'll have to come back and talk to you about that. Exactly. Next video, yeah. But, but yeah, it's that's that's the thing. Um, I don't know why I do that. I think I'm interrogating at the moment of why I prefer working with historical narrative. But I think one of the reasons is that people can maybe still switch off a little bit once they're sitting in, and then once it seeps in later, they connect it rather than because the news cycle is just so in our faces. You know, um, people still want to go to be taken to another place, to mm -hmm. be taken somewhere else when they sit and watch a piece of theatre. And that's how I, I want people to connect emotionally with the protagonists and the characters and what's going on and the atmosphere and interesting things that we use in the film and lighting. That, um, yeah, I think the stuff I make just requires a little bit of afterthought for a week. So, <laughs> you know. I just hope yeah. you do it, but if they don't want to, they've still enjoyed something, and that's fine. Um, but the same thing with the soundtrack, to be honest, if you haven't seen the show, it's something you can still listen to and really enjoy because the musicianship of it uh, is phenomenal. And people like Pablo Suarez, who's uh, he played it live as well, but he's um, a wonderful jazz flamenco pianist, he's, he's a master, you know. and one of the most beautiful people about that is just Nathan Star. Uh, but he's huge on the flamenco scene over there. And then we've got our very own Andrew Robinson, who's Scottish, but is also like very much revered as an incredible flamenco guitarist. You know, so when I was bringing these guys over from Spain, I'm like, we can't believe Andrew, we can't believe Andrew. <laughs> I'm like, I know, I know, it's it's bizarre, but there you go. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. It's not explaining it. It's just a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant musician. Uh, we've got Ayuzi uh, Alejandro Lopez. So he's an amazing percussionist. He's played with world musicians all over the place. He's from Gran Canaria, but we met in London years ago. But one of the most lovely things is that my flamenco maestro, Javier La Torre, who used to be a principal with the National Ballet of Spain and all that stuff, he's, he's just such an amazing man. And he is uh, doing, I'll say in Spanish phrase, doing palmas, which is clapping, and the stamping, which is tacaneo, on the record. Oh, amazing. And the day that he was coming in, when we were in London, I'll never forget this, Will, who I work with in London, who is uh, my producer down there, is really, really sound. He's one of those really lovely, posh, but really sound people. <laughs> <laughs> They're kind of like, this shouldn't work, but it just does, and great. And um, Will went on his, on his bike, but the one night, and I was like, Harry's coming in tomorrow, what the hell is he going to stamp on? Because 
was carpet in his shoes and dangled his arms. So. And he went home on his bicycle, went in his back shed, knocked something up, strapped it to his back, cycled in the next morning, and went, what do you think of this, Kerry? Is this okay for you? And uh, I said, did you make that? He went, no, oh, yeah, I didn't take that. And he did. Oh. <laughs> I know, I know. And, but that's, I, I've always worked with Will, and that's why, you know, that's why. I mean, yeah. It's but like it, bleeding heart. It's like bestel. <laughs> oh, bless him. Yeah. I love it though. It's dedication. It. It's the keeping though, isn't it? It's great. Yeah. I just, um, I think the whole thing. We made an instrument as well. I forgot to say. We made an instrument. Yeah. I, I wanted a kind of music box effect. And uh, he brought in a load of stuff. And uh, we just started, you know, messing about with it. And in the end, we had this wide up little instrument that just managed to sound we bought a couple of things kids things and, you know all kinds and it, they all sounded too modern we wanted something that sounded really old so we yeah we just made something so it's been uh, it's been a durational project for a reason because the attention to detail was just mental to be honest yeah I think that's amazing though I just I love I, all those little things are just brilliant I wanted to jump back as well to something that you were saying about um you know that thing of you're drawn to things that are set in a different time you connect I think with family members and actually I think in some way there's when you're watching something for me anyway it resonates deeper because I would look at something say you know during second world war whatever and I, like um my grandpa fought in the second world war so I, that resonates with me my gran grew up in, in glasgow so she was in the anderson shelters and all of that oh, and wow. it really like it resonates with you so i think there's something about seeing that and then coming away from it and going oh that's still happening that's not right and rather than it just being now this is happening we're like yes it's not right and it needs fixed but there's something about it still happening really for me pushes me to keep fighting and pushes me to keep going the fact that we're still doing the fight the same narrative is happening over and over again that so why is it not changing makes me want to find that out but also makes me want to fight harder I think well, yeah, I mean, what the Spanish Civil War does really is chart the rise of uh, fascism in Europe. And that is absolutely where we are now. Mm. And we're, we're very much in an epoch that's similar to the 1930s and I think at the moment getting into the late 1930s. And so, yeah, but the problem is that when we go, like you're saying, you know, that familial connection that we can feel generally stops at the grandparent generation. Mm. And it's quite rare that you would maybe have that same feeling about a great grandparent, unless you're a nerd and you love history and you're really interested in your family's history. Mm, yeah. Yes, as we all seem to be. But you know, I'm like, give me it all, give me it all. <laughs> yeah, but the general populace, not so much. And I think that's why describing. I'm not even talking necessarily artistically now. I think sociologically these ideas re-emerge as soon as the memory of these unbelievably tragic and huge events have started to fade more and more into the memory, all the survivors uh, are dying, you know, or gone. Um, and that is kind of one of the reasons I feel that it's re-emerging, you know, 
because that very visceral emotive, uh, no, I know that's wrong, you know, without any question uh, is, is leaving us as these people are leaving us. And that's why we hear rhetorics about freedom of speech and Nazis and people too, you know, <laughs> this kind of nonsense of wanting hate speech to be seen. Yeah. The same. Uh, yeah. As freedom of speech, for people. yeah, you're so you're so right. I think it's also a um, a societal thing of not having the level of respect for the older generation that we need that we should have. That you know, absolutely. And I think coronavirus has shown us that we'll never have how society treats our elders. elderly, <laughs> yeah, and that society absolutely can be judged by that. You know. Um, yeah, I think yeah. up here it was still a little bit better. Yeah, up here was better than it was down south. Still not quite. Could have been better. Could have been quicker. Could have been on it a bit more. Um, yes. but much better than. Yeah, there's still a bit more of a, a juicy of care that was felt, I think, by the leaders rather than. Oh, Bojo! Oh, Bojo! Yeah, Bojo. Um, Ah. He can't see us, but we are all rolling our eyes. All rolling. Well, at least I was. I rolled on behalf of all three of us. So on that subject. Oh, here we go. Oh, political. I love it. Um, what <laughs> have you always been political? Yes, I have. Um, I. Ooh, where to start with that? <laughs> um, <laughs> I have. A... <laughs> um. Yeah. I mean. I... Artistically, uh, one side of me says, "Oh, I don't, uh, I don't make very obtuse kind of partisan political comments in the artistic sector." But, but on a personal note, I do. You know, I flag my flag to the mass quite happily. You know, at this point in time, <laughs> it would be absolutely pointless and hiding. But um, yeah, you know, trade union family very much so, and, and I grew up in. Um, I did my high school years in Liverpool prior to we've been moving around quite a few places and you probably hear that on my accent as well. But um, Ireland was on the map as was Spain and a bit of my childhood there. And then Liverpool during the high school years and it coincided with just an absolute powder keg of political activity, which really did give me my political education and I'll be forever grateful for that but you know in a really condensed period there you had uh, race riots you had the miners strikes you had the dockers strikes you had the, the um, print workers strikes as well you had uh, god what else was going on Hillsborough you had uh, a lot a lot of cases of police brutality that were being challenged you had um both the Irish and Jamaican communities getting the same uh, treatment from the Stop and Sus laws that Thatcher brought in, um, which was awful because young men could be lifted off the streets and all know where they were for days and days, sometimes weeks and then. Um, so it was unbelievable the amount of solidarity that was happening in that city, you know, and if you didn't feel it then, walking around with your eyes and ears closed, it, it was impossible. To not be affected by it um and it is a place where if something's going on everybody comes out the doors you know an announcement comes on the radio and everybody gets to it and i love that about that place especially that place at that time you know um so yeah i think 
if you didn't get a political education from all of that. Yeah, yeah. It's something a bit wrong, to be honest. Um, because you were seeing all of those things in the war. Yeah. You know, it, they weren't just things that you saw on the news. They were actually happening mm. in, in the space and time that you're living in. Um, but at the same time, we had this like, massive burst of creativity, clubs and so much music and so much experimentation. Um, so yeah, it was it was pretty full on. But I left there when I was um, seventeen or eighteen, yeah, to go and study. And I haven't lived there since. But it's um, it's still a place close to my heart. You know? Yeah. Mm. Well, when it has such an effect on the person you become, it's always yeah. right. It's always going to have. Glasgow is a lot different, you know, that's the thing. I've also lived in Newcastle upon Tyne because I studied there for a little bit, and then Glasgow for 20 years, you know, and there's so many similarities between uh, a lot to do with the fates that have befallen us, to be honest, by Tory governments. Um, yeah. There's a, an incredible amount of solidarity between people and leftist movements and people gathering and organising. Um, I think that'll never die so you know my political affiliation is definitely on the revolutionary end rather than liberal or party political i'm not particularly interested in that because that's still systems that i don't believe actually work it's really interesting because um I, while you were talking about that i was kind of thinking about um how that kind of relates to where we are right now because people who maybe would have been political before everything that's going on in the world with coronavirus with everything that's happening in government in the uk and in the usa and all the riots in the us with like everything civil rights everything that's happening in our world at the moment is inciting exactly what you had in liverpool when you were growing up it's this is all happening on a global scale now everything in turkey in poland it it's amazing that the whole world seems to be in the same kind of, well, what I can see and what I can see is in the UK. So I suppose actually I can't really speak for the whole world, but it feels much more unified in a wider way that we've all got this kind of revolution um, awakening. I think that's the, that is one of the bonuses of the internet and social media. It has a lot of negative connotations with it but actually and I think our young people are so aware because we were so we didn't have any experience of that before we maybe we thought we were political because we were we were voting yes for independence or we weren't voting Tory and then we got Tory and we were mad about it like but we never had more than kind of what we saw which we were used to seeing because it wasn't a huge change. I mean, I don't know if that even makes sense. It makes sense in my head. But whereas now it's so massive and it's so against what is right. It's, It's just horrific what we're witnessing in the world. And although it's not firsthand the way it was when you were living in Liverpool, it's firsthand like seeing videos on the internet. You're right. It's This is our first chance at seeing how fucked the world is and we are mad about it we're really fucking mad i think it is for people in the west certainly you know and obviously in, in, even in europe in a lot of spaces if you're talking from 
what happened during the Soviet era and the fall of that, and then what happened to those societies post-communism um, was this, you know, and there was a lot of this, and there still is. But I think what everyone is definitely recognising is that there's the end of an empire, you know, an empire that people have taken for granted for a very long time, and that came in the advent of capitalism and mercantilism, and then uh, colonialism and slavery and all of the other things that people are actually suddenly going, I hadn't thought of that before, actually. <laughs> well, I think I think there's always been anti-fascist movements, but I think what there hasn't always been is a recognition of uh, structural racism, and that's the important thing that is actually being dissected at the moment. How people become, um, how people decolonize their allyship is another thing, and that's more of an individual journey, I would say. Yeah. And also calling to account organisations that think a declaration about Black Lives Matter exonerates them from any further inter interrogation of their own structures. Well, no, that's clearly not enough and very milquetoast for the epoch that we're living in. So I think they're the interesting things that time is up, you know, time's ticking, it's up, this empire is done great we can celebrate that but what we really need to think about especially in scotland if we're talking independence and what do we actually want the new societies to look like you know what what do we really want to create we know this doesn't work but what do we want to replace it with yes. um, that's the work now i think hmm. or part of it's there's so much to do <laughs> that's a part of it for sure the imagining it's like creating any piece of art, isn't it? It's exciting, but it's a lot of fucking work and a lot of funding proposals. <laughs> <laughs> but it is it is so exciting knowing that we can redesign it and, you know and build that. What excites me is Generation Z. Mm. I think they're the coolest, bunch of young people ever. I really do. And, you know, I think Gen Y had this technology and there was, you know, an excitement around that, but for Generation Z, there isn't, it's just, you know, ubiquitous as having a phone or having a, a lamp, you know, <laughs> I don't know, something you're very much, a television, something you're very much, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so they can use those tools now mm. as tools, not as some, you know, exciting thing, they're just tools to use, and I don't know, I just feel like cognitively, mm. they are, it's not a game, it's not a game or a toy that they've been given. It is a tool. Yeah. yeah. And just seeing them, how mobilised they are and how no bullshit they are. And uh, yeah, it's incredible. And um, all power to them. And people like me will be kind of there with a bit of strategy and not as on the front line because I believe that. It's for young people to go and shout their generational demands. You know, that's yeah. as a part of being young. Um, but I don't ever ever want to hear anybody talk about young people in a derogatory way ever again after all of the efforts and incredible strength and resilience that they're showing. Yeah. Taking on these enormous structures. Yeah. yeah. It's, they're taking on capitalism and heteropatriarchy and um 
institutional racism. They're, they're huge, huge things, and they're fearless in the, doing it. Uh, we need to remember too that the Black Lives Matter protests are still going on. Yeah. You know, that's, that's something to keep in mind. And, and my heart goes out to those people in uh, Portland and in Seattle that are being brutalized possibly by federal police in America. I think it's terrible. Yeah. But it's happening here as well. I think when we watch TV, we watch stuff online. We have this, oh, that's America, America's nuts. We know this. <laughs> no, no, it's not only happening there, you know, it's it's actually happening here too. Yeah. Little things with this lockdown um, should show us how easily that can actually happen too, regarding civil liberties. Mm. Um, so we're nearly coming up for time. I just wanted to say, I know, I know. Um, we just want to give people a little heads up on how they can support you. Yes, I can. Um, the fundraiser where you can help us get this beautiful album finished and released. You can look at a few different places to find it. If you go to the website, which is www.camry, which is spelled K-A-M hyphen R-I dot com, the first thing you'll see is the fundraiser. And it's also in Spanish as well, if you have any Spanish friends that are interested. Um, or you can go onto the donor box link directly, but all roads lead to the same place. Um, Kerry Ava on Facebook is where you'll find updates about the process as well, which might interest you. And according to Miranda, who's a friend of mine, who's doing a little bit of PR on this, we are now on Instagram. I do not know. <laughs> I have no idea. I write with a pen and pencil, but by all accounts, Camry is there on Instagram. And I think it's Kerry Ava, all one word, K A M underscore R I. Um, there you go. Maybe that's more your bag. Sensational. And we'll have all those links and details and follow throughs in the comments about section. I'm pointing down as if my video is going live. (laughs) I'm doing a full influencer moment. Thank you so much for watching. This has been Persistent and Nasty Podcast. (laughs) And you can like to subscribe. (laughs) Sorry, I just wanted to hit that button. Uh, Hit that button. We will please do genuinely. Hit that button. Um, We will make sure that it's all in the description for the episodes yes. all the and everything. yeah that's, that's amazing uh, thanks for having me on this has been fun and i want to come back and tell you about the next one yes please 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 uh, do it's really funny kerry because usually we ask people what um, persistent and nasty means to them but i kind of feel like we don't need to ask you that because it's pretty clear kerry thank you so much for coming along and chatting to us we really enjoyed it and um guys uh, get all the info on the website on the typist and how you can support the typist soundtrack thank you so much and as always stay nasty, nasty. <laughs> see the timing on that over zoom at every single time i'm like what the fuck why are we even bother <laughs>